access number is 963003. Also, the cab will hold officer elections at the May meeting. The election will be for chair, vice chair, and recording secretary. In order to vote in the election, you have to be a cab member. To be a cab member, you have to be a member of WBAI. You will have to attend the next three cab meetings and take part in the meetings. Again, the call-in number is 623-600-3766. The access number is 963-003. Stay tuned for Driving Forces. It is 5 p.m., And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned. Welcome back to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You are listening to Driving Forces, a weekly show every Thursday at 5 o'clock that looks at the issues affecting our city and our country. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, here with my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston, and we're glad to be with you today. Hey, Jeff, glad to be with you today, too. There's uh, certainly a lot going on in the world, in New York, in our country. Lots to talk about today. Yeah, I've been following what's been going on in Georgia. And, you know, our listeners who tune in every week know that we've been following what's going on up in Albany. But I have to just, you know, say, and I know, Celeste, you and I have caught up a little on this already, that it's just devastating when you read about and see uh, some of the stories that are coming out of Georgia this week. Yeah, absolutely. This is really just a a dark moment in uh, American history, Uh, looking at what happened. Eight people, uh, including six, uh, six people of Asian descent, women killed in those three incidents uh, at spa businesses uh, in the Atlanta area. And, uh, you know, right now we're still looking at the motivation. Uh, A man has been charged with eight counts of murder in those cases. But, you know, trying to find out if there's a a bias motivation there, a racial motivation. Um, even before that official conclusion is made, although certainly people have opinions about it, but uh, people certainly already very concerned about bias attacks, harassment, uh, mistreatment of Asian American people, and uh, certainly uh, rightfully so, considering that there has been a spate of incidents in New York, California, elsewhere, uh, where people are being targeted. And, you know, last night there was a rally here in Jackson Heights. There's other rallies that are being held. I, uh, Celeste, I had talked about recently on one of the shows that I had attended a rally in Sunnyside that was organized by uh, several uh, council candidates. And then I had spoken with uh, New York State Assembly member Yuli Nu about the rise in anti-Asian violence here in the city. It just doesn't seem to be slowing down. And in fact, as you've noted, we're hearing about more cases. I, I always question when we hear about these cases, and Georgia, obviously, we were going to hear about it, but as more being reported, is it that there's a rise in incidents, a rise in reporting? But what we're seeing is more visible evidence of these incidents, not just words, but actions. And we all know that hateful words can lead to hateful violence. Absolutely. And that's something that I've been looking at also in my reporting. Uh, recently did a piece for NBC News, NBC Asian America, uh, where we looked at, you know, what are some of the reasons why we may not realize that this is a bigger problem than we think. And there are lots of reasons why um, certain incidents are not uh, prosecuted as hate crimes, but also on the flip side, where a lot of incidents are not reported. Um, and some nonprofits have been stepping in. 
and uh, stop AAPI hate groups like that to sort of encourage self-reporting, at least of incidents, to attract attention to the fact that even if something isn't officially, you know, quantified or prosecuted as a hate crime per se, there are still incidents in this country with uh, Asian American people being coughed on, spit on. Obviously, these are things that are related to um you know, this, this belief that uh, Asian people are responsible for the coronavirus, people being sprayed with disinfectant, people uh, being refused service in, in stores, restaurants and businesses like that. And it, it really is disturbing. And, um, you know, just on a personal note, I would say that as someone myself of uh, Asian descent, uh, this this is something that, that I find really upsetting. And particularly, I would say, uh, when you see the um, the targeting of elderly people, which is something that has been sort of a hallmark of a lot of these attacks, people preying on vulnerable people like that is is to me exceptionally disturbing. And we're going to get to that later on in the show with our second guest, Sandra Ung. Uh, an activist, an advocate who's also running for council here in Queens and her district uh, includes a neighborhood where there was one of those incidents. But first up today, we're going to go to one of the key topics of the day uh, or of the day of the week of the weeks recently. It's the ongoing challenges that uh, acting that New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo has been has been facing. Yeah, obviously, that's something that's really been uh, on people's minds, and rightfully so. These are very serious allegations, and an increasing number of allegations, uh, again, sort of a, a two-pronged scandal, if you will, involving Governor Cuomo on the one hand um, facing um, accusations from a number of women that he uh, conducted himself inappropriately uh, in in terms of sexual harassment, making unwanted advances against women. Um, that obviously is under investigation by uh, State Attorney General Letitia James. Um, but at the same time, we're also looking at some real concerns about whether we got the truth from the state about how many people were dying in nursing homes during this COVID-19 pandemic. So two very, very serious problems going on right at once and probably exactly at the moment where we don't need to be distracted from the battle to keep coronavirus under control. And just before the show today, Quinnipiac put out another poll. We'll be coming back to you later in the show with some more of the statistics, but just one that'll lead into our first guest. One statistic, just under half of the people polled, 49% of voters said that Cuomo should not resign versus 43% who say he should. So with that, that leads us to our first conversation today with one of the sharpest critics of the governor, New York State Senator Alessandra Biaggi, who once worked in the administration. She has called on the governor to step down. Just a little about her before uh, we get to her, because she's not been on the show before. She is the Democratic New York State Senator in her home district covering Bronx and Westchester and chair of the Revived Ethics and Internal Governance Committee. She's the granddaughter of Italian immigrants who lived in Hunts Point and the fourth generation of her family to live in District 34. And before I get to her, I want to note, within her first two months in office, the senator chaired the first public hearings in 27 years on sexual harassment in the workplace. With that, I'd like to introduce our first guest today, New York State Senator Alessandro Biaggi. Welcome to WBAI. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here to have this conversation with both of you. So. As I've noted, you've been one of the more outspoken elected officials from the start of this, but your concerns didn't even just begin with the recent allegations of several women. You've had longer term concerns. How would you assess the governor's tenure and how he has governed? Well, I mean, you're absolutely correct to note that I have been um, an honest critic of the governor's governance, which I think is a very healthy part of um, a health, having a really strong democracy. I think that one of the instincts that many um, individuals in politics often flinch against is one where we are criticizing a member of our own party. But I do think that if we are going to have a system of government that many people can trust, all people can trust, then we have to be really honest about what's going on. So from the very beginning, um, I have been that way. Now, I did not always have this assessment, but I have worked for the governor in two different occasions. I worked in the governor's office of storm recovery, which was an office that 
was rebuilding after Hurricane Sandy. And I also worked in the governor's executive chamber, which is the essential equivalent of like his his main office of the entire executive branch of government. I worked in his counsel's office as an attorney um, for roughly eight months. And it was in the, the second experience, the experience in the executive chamber, that I was able to have a front row seat into the culture and the dynamic of what it means to be in the Cuomo administration. Now, I went into this job as an attorney wanting to use my law degree to fight back against Donald Trump because this was April of 2017. Donald Trump had just taken office. And I went in very bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, wanting to work on women's issues like the Reproductive Health Act, wanting to work on different immigration issues and federal issues. Um, And what I realized was not only that there was a lot of pomp and circumstance and not really a lot of work behind the scenes being done. But what I realized was that I was part of a culture where not only were people afraid and that that fear came straight from the top, from the governor himself, but people were often um, diminished and berated and yelled at. And there was this culture where people were essentially fearing for their jobs or fearing that they were about to get yelled at for something that they had done. And this culture was not just in the executive chamber, but it was pervasive throughout the executive branch, and it was also carried out by his top aides. And so why New Yorkers should care about this and why I care about this is because I was actually in that job and continue to do the job today as a state senator to get work done, because I do think that New Yorkers deserve to have the most excellent leadership. I am also very competitive. I think that's important for New Yorkers to know. And what does that mean? It means that I want New York to lead. I want us to beat California. I want us to have the best policies, the best infrastructure, the best job operation, the best housing. And yet what we've seen under the governance of Andrew Cuomo is a lot of smoke and mirrors. And even though you can absolutely point to accomplishments that he has gotten done, marriage equality, you can point to raising the minimum wage, um, it's notable that these are things that not only had to be forced or thrust upon him, um, but these are things that he did not do unless he had control over the entire process. And I'm sure we'll get more into that in a moment. But I think in the past year, the reason why my criticisms have grown to a fever pitch is because his handling of COVID-19 and the nursing homes, um, his handling of just the way in which he operates his office um, and the, the impact that it's had on New York has meant that New York is not only not reaching its highest heights, but it is actually holding New Yorkers back and harming New Yorkers because of the policy decisions that he has made and refuses to take accountability for. So, Senator Biagi, I'd be interested to ask you, as somebody I myself have been um, stationed as a reporter in Albany for a few sessions, uh, worked at City Hall, worked, you know, covered Washington, that kind of thing. Um, you know, Andrew Cuomo, to some extent, is, de- you know, is not new on the scene. He is sort of a, a known quantity he worked with HUD. He was attorney general. He ran for governor very briefly, as I recall, but uh, in uh, 2002 before getting off the ticket. Um, you know, to some extent, we have known for a while who Andrew Cuomo is and specifically how he operates. I, I don't think that uh, he had a, a long-term reputation as a, a, a nice guy, um, but maybe some people thought he was effective. Certainly, he you know, had a fan family background in politics. I mean, my question to you is sort of when was the moment where we we reached the conclusion that, you know, or that you reached the conclusion that Andrew Cuomo was not fit to to be a leader? Because there were certainly signs along the way that, you know, this this was his governing style. So I think that I mean, there's probably a lot of different points along the timeline of my experience working for him and then working as a legislator. But the point in time where I actually felt afraid, um, which is a very serious thing for me to have felt, was last February, beginning of March, when it was so clear to me that COVID-19 was either already in New York or it was surely going to come to New York um, and that there was a lack of seriousness for planning. And what I mean by that is that in February, many members of the legislature had asked our leadership to have the Department of Health Commissioner come and talk to us and brief us about what is COVID-19? How should we lead our districts and answer the questions of our constituents? And when the health commissioner had come to visit with us, it was very much a communication style of 
don't panic people and make sure that everybody washes their hands, things that we already knew. But there wasn't a briefing or, or in-depth understanding of what is what are we going to do as a government to make sure that people's lives are safe, that they are kept safe, and what exactly do we know that we can share information-wise? Because in a crisis, people want information. And not only were we not given that information, but the virus was taken – to say it was a joke to them is, is going too far, but it wasn't taken as seriously as the rest of the world was already taking it because at this point in time, on a timeline scale, we already had seen what it had done to China, Italy, Washington State had already lost several seniors in a nursing home, so we did know that the most vulnerable population was in, um, in the elderly population. And when it came time – to make decisions in New York, there was a stalling of shutting down. Um, there was, I, at one point, the governor was making fun of the mayor. Um, so however you, your feelings about the mayor are, put them aside for a second. The mayor was saying that we should shut down in the beginning of March. He had been saying this, and the governor and his team were making fun of the mayor, calling him, quote, a psycho, which is, it's alarming for so many reasons, but it all started to come together at that point when I realized not only are we not going to get guidance, we're not going to get guidance that's actually based in fact. And that was a very scary thing to experience because I had and have a district where there's 330,000 people in a borough that we now know today has been most affected and hit, not only in New York, but the whole country, most COVID deaths, most infection rates in the Bronx. And this is a place that is very vulnerable. And I did not feel like I had the information to protect them. So I had to hunker down. And essentially what I did was I created my own little war room in my office and I started to message on a daily basis information to my district. Now, I messaged sometimes a little bit differently than the governor. I took it a little bit more seriously at certain points. But where these things start to fall down is when he started making decisions around nursing homes. And that is when I realized that we were in some serious trouble. Do you think that how much of this uh, sort of either failure to communicate or failure to to take this seriously or failure to respond to it in a timely way? How much do you think that was sort of lack of information or taking it seriously? And how much was a deliberate attempt, would you say, to minimize this for political reasons or control reasons or what what have you? So I think we see different different sides of Andrew Cuomo throughout this whole pandemic. In the beginning of the pandemic, when he was asked by the press, you know, don't you think you should have answers to this? His response was, governors don't do pandemics, which I found to be ridiculous, mainly because New York State is a state where it, so much of what happens on the world stage happens in New York State, specifically in New York City. Um, so I thought that was irresponsible, mainly because if you're a governor of a state as large as New York, you're looking around the world and you're saying, well, what's going on in Italy and what's going on in Europe and what's happening in Washington state? Let me call the governor of Washington state. Let me have a conversation with the prime minister of Italy. I mean, these are things that a governor of a state this big with this much um, clout and prominence can absolutely do. At the same time, months later, we see the governor writing a book about how he was a leader during COVID and had all of the answers. So which one is it? Is it that governors don't do pandemics or is it that he is the governor who knew everything and had all of the answers and led us through a pandemic, even though New York still has the highest death rates of any other state in the country? So, Senator, what also crosses my mind is the climate, the tone that a leader sets within his or her administration. I worked in government for eight years. I worked for an elected official who never screamed. I mean, he would set it, he would be firm with me and he would be firm with others, but there wasn't that same reputation that you often hear about with the governor. And, you know, you have also been on the receiving end from what I ha had read in the last few days, the receiving end of, of rather, uh, I know we have to use proper language here on BAI, but rather fiery, uh, uh, messages from people around him. What type of broader change is needed in this administration, in your view? Sure. So, you know, from the top, I want anybody who's listening to understand that I am not in a delusional state where I think that politics is this really easy, breezy, you know, profession where you go in and everything's going to be so great and wonderful all day long. It's high stress, high stakes, you are literally making decisions based on people's life and death. So I understand that. And I also understand what it means to be a New Yorker because I am a New Yorker, born and, born and raised, and also very proud of it. And so there is a toughness that comes with being a New Yorker that I think all of us wear as a patch of pride. 
This administration is not about being tough. This administration has demonstrated not only behaviors that are toxic, but Albany in and of itself has long been a place that has silenced people who have spoken out about any kind of abuse, abuse of power, whether it's sexual assault, sexual harassment, whether it's yelling or berating people or harassing people or threatening their careers or their lives. And it's been a culture where a lot of this has been swept under the rug. And so I think that what we're seeing now, and one of the reasons I came to Albany, was to work on this issue, to not have workplaces that have sexual harassment, assault or abuse or, you know, toxic workplace behavior. I think that we're starting to see that real progress take shape because more people are speaking out. But my hope is that bringing this toxic work culture to light and holding the governor and his senior aides accountable will also help us change the culture. Because as you noted earlier, even though we've held hearings and also passed laws, it's, it's very clear to me, and I'm starting to realize this conclusion, which is that it, it is easier to pass a law, and by no means is it easy to pass a law, especially ones that are consequential of the nature that we've passed, but it's easier to pass a law than it is to change this culture. And I think that right now we have a window to really change Albany and how it operates and to use this moment and the momentum to successfully bring transparency to New York State politics, because I am not proud that Albany is known as a cesspool of corruption, and no New Yorker should be proud of that. And every single New Yorker should be demanding that there is independence in decision-making, that we have ethics that is at the forefront of our decision-making, that we are thinking about how the government of New York can be an example for the rest of the country. And the only way that we can do that is by saying we have a zero-tolerance policy for not only toxic workplaces, but especially for workplaces where employees and others are treated with assault, misconduct, and also harassment. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're speaking to New York State Senator Alessandra Biaggi and Senator wanted to ask you, you know, certainly people have very strong feelings. Uh, there's there's no question or there should be no question that women who uh, come out and, and talk about experiences like what's being described here, um, you know, sexual harassment and so on, uh, that women should be heard. Uh, at the same time, what what do you say to people who say we should wait and not um, expect uh, Governor Cuomo to resign uh, before the proper investigations have reached their own conclusions independently? So listen, I, I think this is a very important question because I think it's on most people's minds and it's probably where most of this conversation is begins to get divided. I respect the decisions of New Yorkers who believe that we should wait till there is an independent investigation completed by the Attorney General. That is their prerogative. They are entitled to that. At the same time, I want to make clear that the governor is guaranteed due process under the law by the processes that we are putting in place. Calling for him to resign and to step aside is not a judgment about his liability for any alleged criminal conduct. And the formal investigations and any other investigations that have now been on, you know, started, whether it's by the assembly or otherwise, will be investigations that allow for him to be have an opportunity to be heard, for information to be presented, for witnesses to testify, and for the regular process to carry out. Why I have called for his resignation is because of a collection of misdeeds, not just the sexual assault and harassment allegations, although I do think that alone those are sufficient to call for his resignation. And notably, he has called for the resignation of others with less allegations against them in the same category of harassment allegations and misconduct, but also because he has made decisions around the elderly, a population that is the most vulnerable, whether you're in COVID or not, that has led to increased deaths and also decisions that allowed for not the elderly and the senior citizens in nursing homes to be protected, but for the special interests and the nursing home owners and operators to be protected by putting into provisions of our budget last year corporate immunity that shields the nursing homes and others from being sued for liability. And so I just want to make clear that there is a stark difference between investigations that may end in criminal charges and the question of confidence in our political leadership. And I have lost confidence in the political leadership and ability of decision-making for this governor, which is why I have called for him to resign. 
So, Senator, we've only got about a minute left and so much more we'd want to ask you. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I keep hearing about is that this is a distraction from the work that our legislators have to get done. And I know we only have a very brief amount of time, but you did have a major accomplishment today in the Senate that there has been yeah. such a, a, a serious movement now towards ending solitary confinement. Can you just talk very briefly about why this was important for the Senate to act on and what you think the governor will do at this time? Well, first of all, I want to say that the, the passage of the HALT Solitary Confinement Act is a monumental um, accomplishment by the legislature. This bill now has passed the Senate and the Assembly. This bill ends, essentially, um, segregated confinement, solitary confine, confinement um, in jails and prisons. Um, I'm sure that there will be some amendments that are made because, as the bill currently stands, in jails or prisons with 500 beds or less, um, solitary confinement is still allowed. So many of us are, are really um, focused on eliminating it entirely. But as it stands, this is one of the biggest uh, pieces of legislation that we have ever passed. And my colleague, Senator Salazar, and others have been just at the forefront of this. Solitary confinement, as it stands in New York before today and before the governor signs the bill into law, um, really has been a human rights violation because it exceeds the time that the um, United Nations has deemed appropriate for solitary confinement, which is beyond 15 days. And so I do believe that not only will this bill get delivered to the governor's desk, um, but that the governor will sign the bill. And if the governor does not sign the bill for some reason that you know I perhaps cannot foresee at the moment, um, whether it's fiscal or otherwise, which I don't believe is a reason sufficient at the time, especially for a topic of this significance, um, then, you know, we do have a supermajority, and I do think that we will have the votes to be able to override that. And if we don't, then we ought to whip those votes and make sure that this bill gets passed and signed into law because the significance of it on the population of those who are in prison at the moment will be so incredibly far-felt and, and, and have significant impacts on their ability to rehabilitate not only in prison but also once they are um, released from uh, prison or jail. And New York State Senator Alessandra Biagi, where can we find out more about you and your work? Of course, we always wish we had more time, but uh, where can people follow up if they want to learn more? I wish I had more time, too. There's so much to say, so I appreciate that. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I have two different Twitter accounts, one for personal, one for my Senate. It's Biagi4NY or Senator Biagi. Um, at Senator Biaggi, or you can follow me um, on Instagram or just check out my website. Of course, there's a government website and Biaggi4NY.com, and I really do answer those DMs, so it's me behind those messages. So if you have a question or concern, please definitely reach out. Okay, great. Senator, thank you so much for joining us today here on WBAI. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to WBAI New York. 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. We just heard from New York State Senator Alessandra Biagi. We're talking about, of course, all the latest developments uh, regarding the investigations surrounding Governor Andrew Cuomo. And I think we have our next guest coming up. So just want to take literally a few seconds to remind you that we are able to bring you conversations like this, news reports, talks with people who know what's going on in the halls of power and what should be going on uh, with your support. Please consider becoming uh, a contributor to WBAI in any amount that you are able. Just go to WBAI.org and click Ways to Donate, WBAI.org, to support free speech, independent, non-commercial radio. And we're going to move on right now, actually, to our next guest. We're happy to welcome to the program Sandra Ong. She's special assistant to Congresswoman Grace Meng. We've had her on Driving Forces before and a candidate for the New York City Council in Queens. She is a lawyer, a public servant, and a community advocate. She's championed issues that impact women, survivors of domestic violence, youth, and the environment. She is also executive director of Grace's At the Table PAC. It is a political action committee dedicated to expanding women and minority representation in politics. And she has been a legislative assistant in the past to former New York City Comptrollers Bill Thompson and John Liu. So welcome very much uh, to the program, uh, Sandra Ung. Thank you for having me on today. 
Really appreciate it. And uh, we want to jump right into something that we started uh, mentioning a little bit earlier on in the program, obviously something that's of great concern to uh, to Jeff, to me, and to everybody who listens to WBAI, which is specifically what happened in Georgia with the murders of a group of Asian American women, but also sort of the broader issue of uh, anti-AAPI uh, bias and harassment in this country right now. Just wanted to ask you first, uh, you know, how are you processing what happened in Georgia this week? I mean, our hearts um, obviously go out to the um, the families, um, to the victims of violence, um, as far as, you know, like um, in the Asian American community. Um, like, you know, we're, we're just having a hard time processing this because it is happening way too much, way too often. And so we're a little bit scared. Like, we're now, I'm on Texas on change with my Asian American friends and family, telling each other to be careful um, when we go out. Um, and that's something I don't think we ever thought we would need to do to say to each other and, and to be concerned. I have two senior parents at home, and I'm just telling them, you know, they should really be careful when they go out. Because I don't know. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know when, you know, people see Asian Americans now, what, what you know, what they're thinking of. You know, Sandra, yeah, Sandra, I, and I've, I've known you for years, and we've never had an opportunity to talk about this. So I'm glad we're having this opportunity now. Because I just wonder why. Why are we seeing this you know, emboldenment now, if that's a word? Why are we seeing this increase? What do you think has taken, you know, why is this climate existing where people feel it is okay to do things like this? Not just in Georgia, but, you know, what we saw in Flushing with the woman who was uh, tossed, you know, thrown to the ground, where we're seeing other attacks, the, the incident that just happened in San Francisco, I think in the last 24 hours. Why do you think this is happening? Sure, and uh, I'll also tell you, like yesterday, uh, there was a 13-year-old boy that uh, was in Bound Park and was playing, and it was, like, you know, pushed to the ground, and he, he, you know, three teenager boys called him, like, you know, you know a stupid F-word Chinese, and it's like, why is it happening? So a couple of reasons. I think as an Asian-American, we are always seen as the perpetual foreigner. Um, we are always seen as people who are not really a part of the United States. And it obviously did not help that our former president, um, you know, went, you know, all over the place with social media, with this public rhetoric that, you know, the virus, uh, the coronavirus was the Kung Fu virus. I know. And actually, it's very sad that he might at that time find it to be humorous and people who support him thought it was humorous. But obviously, it has very lasting effect on our community. And uh, I wanted to ask about something that uh, is, I think, being discussed not only in light of what happened in Georgia, but much more broadly. And it's something that I've written about, which is that a lot of these incidents, even violent incidents, uh, are not always prosecuted or even investigated as potential hate crimes. And so uh, there's there's an issue sometimes of underreporting and of people not being comfortable going to the police, but then sometimes that might be related to the idea that people may feel that the police won't take this seriously. They won't do anything about it. We're, we're seeing reports coming out of Georgia right now that the spokesman for uh, one of the law enforcement agencies had China virus T-shirts, basically joke T-shirts that, you know, he had on his Facebook page, uh, you know. What what are what are you uh, sort of advising people that you're speaking to about um, you know their concerns about even bringing up these incidents to the authorities when some people think they won't be taken seriously? So you know, still, still, you know, when we talk to the community, I still tell them that they need to report it because the worst thing that can happen right now is to underreport. To underreport means like you know. You know, I was listening uh, to a program today, and then, you know, someone said, like, like Asian-Americans are not statistically significant. And that's really hurtful. So it's like, you know, for us, anytime, I, you know, I hear of people saying they have these incidents, I was like, you have to report. But that brings it back to the government. What are we doing, like you said? Do people feel comfortable going to local police precincts to report, especially in some precincts where... There is no language access, right? They're not speaking the language of the people who are coming to report. 
Um, you know, I do know the New York State uh, Human Rights um, Division do have a website that you can report these hate crimes. But you know what? It's all in English. Um, so we need to think about ways to make it to help, to help our community, to make it easier for us to report these incidents, you know, whether it's like, you know, diversity, NYPD hiring, having a hotline that actually speaks the language of the Asian American community, and having a website that's properly translated. You know, what goes through my mind so often here when incidents like this happen is, you know, the fear. The, the people who are not necessarily vict- victimized in person, but that they become fearful uh, every time they step outside of their house. They become fearful every time they post something on social media. What's going to be the reaction? Are they going to be abused on social media? It, it's a very upsetting time right now. And the more I hear about these incidents, the more depressing it gets. So how do you how do you turn this around? How do you talk to, you know, get people to understand, uh, in addition to what you said about reporting being important, how do you get them to, you know, create a broader, more welcoming environment? Because it really, there are times where I just, I I can't believe what I'm reading and that we live in this day and age where, where these incidents just keep happening. So Jeff, like, I mean, so this, you know, so, you know, the beginning of coronavirus, I actually went to one of my local CBS stores. This is in my community. And I remember vividly, like, I'm going to the store and I was going to buy something, but I changed my mind. So I, I stopped touching that thing and then I just put it away and I touched something else. And this, this woman came up to me and she's like, stop touching everything. She's like, you know, like, you know, the, you know, it's you guys, you know, it's you guys who created a virus. And I think at that moment, Jeff, I was, like, this is my local CVS store, right? And I, I, I didn't know. I was shocked. I was shocked and I was hurt. And I know I keep on using the word hurt because as someone who sees myself as an Asian American, a very part of this, of United States, of this community, wanting to help United States in this community, for someone to say that to me, I was just like, what? Like, why? Like, how could you? Like, it, it was actually just, it was, I found out it was just very hurtful. And I actually, at that moment, didn't even know what I was supposed to do. What should I do, right? I was, I'm looking around. I was like, should I report it to CBS? Should I tell somebody? Should I tell a clerk? I mean, she did walk away. And it's, it's these incidences that I do understand that, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one who will face them. I'm sure many other people, uh, many other Asian Americans have faced this. And, like, what can we do? I think one of the things, and thank you for having me on, is to have leaders, you know, our elected officials, our community leaders, um, to hear us, to really hear us and then to say that we care, like we care about you and we are in this together with you, I think that actually would make a tremendous difference. But sometimes I feel like with the Asian American community, we talk among ourselves. And I also wonder, I was like, well, beyond talking to each other, like do does other communities care? Do other, like, do, you know, do, um, you know, do other community leaders care? Do other elected officials care? Like, do they really care what's happening to us? That's a that's a good question and that's a good point because you know I'm wondering if if you have any thoughts on what people can do. Uh, I, I wrote something recently about uh, you know speaking to experts about what you should do if you are a bystander in an incident involving uh, bias or hate or something like that. And that could range from just asking the person if they're okay to summoning help to creating a distraction. But you know I think we see. Maybe it's well intentioned, some of it, but I think we see a lot of sort of Twitter activism. And, you know, a hashtag is nice, but a hashtag is not going to help somebody who's getting hassled on the street or it's not going to sort of break down uh, institutional barriers to people being treated equally. So just, you know, just as we uh, have a few moments left here, I wanted to ask, you know, what do you feel like people themselves can do to sort of uh, to address this and to to improve the situation? So I think you, you make a, you know, you look really, really good point. At that moment, when I was going through what I was going through, I mean, if someone just came up to me and said, hey, are you okay? You know, that was that's really wrong. Like, I can't believe that woman said that, right? I think that would, like, validate what I was feeling, like, you know, show concern that, you know, like, this is this is wrong. Um, and I, I think part of it is also just, you know, you know, education is very key here, no matter what age, um, you know, where you are, I think it's very important. And I constantly do this myself, honestly, like it's always to constantly educate myself 
um, about, um, you know, different groups, what different groups have gone through in the United States, the history that they have in the United States, and what we could all do better to help each other about anti-bullying and, you know, about, you know, helping each other do uh, different hate crimes. And not just about the Asian-American community, obviously. I mean, uh, you know, there are other communities in New York um, and, you know, all the United States that have faced this. And to have a feeling of solidarity, to know that, you know, we are there for each other would be tremendous. So, Sandra, I want to thank you so much for coming here on the show. I'm sorry we don't have more time with you. Uh, Celeste mentioned at the outset that you're running for New York City Council. So if elected, our hope is that uh, you will be part of whatever uh, group of electeds that push for measures to get enacted to make this a safer uh, and more welcoming uh, city. How can people, how can our listeners learn more about you? Thank you so much for having that. So my website is sandrafornewyork.com. Sandra, I want to thank you so much for appearing here on WBAI today. Thank you for having me on. So last week, we opened up the phone lines to get your thoughts on Andrew Cuomo. And this week, we do want to hear your thoughts. We're going to open up the phone lines in just a few minutes. Uh, The number to call is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. So as we wait for the calls to come in, we're going to take a very short break now and then take your calls. We thought we'd bring you a song that might reflect what is going on in Andrew Cuomo's mind right now, or maybe not. Reggie, let's play that tune. Should I go? If you say that you are mine, I'll be here till the end of time. So you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? It's always taste, taste, taste. You're happy when I'm on my knees. One day is fine and next is black So if you want me off your back Well come on and let me know Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go there will be trouble And welcome back. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. And we want to hear from you. Glad to hear that a lot of people are calling in. Here's the number once more, 212-209-2877, And as we just uh, were asked by The Clash, should he stay or should he go? We're going to go right to the phones. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi. Uh, greetings Hi. to the beloved radio family. This is my ad calling from the cave. I have about three thoughts um, around this Cuomo uh, situation. Uh, it seems that everyone has ignored that he has been a bully for some time. But getting back to the uh, uh, grave concern around the nursing homes, we, we, we really need to deal with this full on because I heard a report in South Korea, they don't have nursing homes, right, uh, which are basically petri dishes. And we need to also uh, have more reporting about the New York State model where they have for-profit uh, uh, petri dish dishes nursing homes and how that came about. I also want to connect this um, in terms of uh, hearing uh, someone uh, named Gwen who called to um, 
oh, I guess two or three, three or so months ago to uh, Johanna Fernandez program, and I haven't been able to catch up with the um, information because she was put on hold at, at the time. But it seems that we also need to look at the role of nursing homes around the fraud of guardianship and conservatorship because basically to mm. seize assets, uh, nursing homes are used quite handily as essentially for people who don't belong there as, as a petri dish lynching mechanism. So mm-hmm. when, if you are listening to this, because I'm researching the situation very deeply, leave your contact information, because she called into another uh, uh, a program, Law of the mm-hmm. Land, and, and we and didn't I think- even get her information. Nation, but she needs to leave her inf- contact information with any of the engineers for my app. And, okay, and- thanks very much. We really do appreciate the call. And uh, uh, Gwen, if you are listening, you can uh, get in touch with your with your contact information. And so. I- so we're going to go to the next call because we know we need to squeeze in as many as possible today. We didn't have enough time last week. We're going to go to the next call. Welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces. You are on the air. What's your name and where are you from? Yeah, hi, Doug Blessington from Staten Island, New York. How are you doing? Today? Thank you. Thank you. How are, what's on your mind today? Well, uh, uh, two things uh, regarding uh, um, Cuomo. Um, basically, I'm still unclear as to who uh, has the final authority. Uh, Cuomo kept saying that they are under legal uh, law, prescriptions, uh, rather proscribing them from accepting a patient that they can't fully care for and that they knew that they had COVID people coming in. So I'm I'm still unclear about that, and the media doesn't seem to clear that up. Getting back to what happened with the uh, the, uh, uh, Asian Pacific uh, population and what happened yesterday in Atlanta, uh, things that you can do, you can call into mass media. We have New York One here in New York. I just got off the phone with them and said, listen, you're always correlating this uh, short sequence that you give to the, um, the murders yesterday, that it's still up in the air, whether it was a hate crime or whether it was a, uh, just a, his sex addiction. Sex addic- addiction. And when they say his sex addic- addiction, they immediately splash onto the two spas in, the, in this particular area where he killed the most people, in, you know, kind of implying that, okay, these are pr- uh, uh, prostitution parlors. And yet the mayor says that these are legitimate businesses. The only report they've had in the last year from anything in this area was one of these spots reported that somebody stole keys. That's the only police report they have. So they correlate this with, oh, these were Asian prostitution parlors. This is the implication you get from the video, the way they profess it. And they, they try to shame the victims. So I called them yeah, protested. I, think... I said, you have no basis for this, and you're basically projecting this onto your viewers as though, oh, it was sex addiction, and therefore this happened. It reminds me of the guy who killed eight people in, in the church in Atlanta after praying with them for an hour. And the police turning around and taking him to Burger King because he was hungry. Yeah, there's uh, and and thank you for your call. I think that you make a, a few good points there. That uh, you know there was there. First of all, we do have a responsibility to cover this accurately and responsibly. And uh, you know, if, if stuff was made of the fact that these were uh, spas or massage parlors, uh, you know, first of all, there's you know there's language there and there's imagery there. Um, but secondly, you know, the idea that the spokes uh, spokesperson for a law enforcement agency would describe the the suspect in this case as having had a really bad day and this is what he did you know i don't i don't know what you guys do out there in radio land when you have a really bad day but i don't think anything that we saw in atlanta would qualify as an appropriate response to having a tough day i think we have more callers out there uh wbai you're on the air what's your name and where you're calling from is this i yeah it's you Okay, um, I'm an old-time hippie. I don't have TV, but uh, when good for you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> but but when this stuff was happening uh, at first, and I heard that Cuomo was was on, uh, I managed to get him on the computer, and it was a very nice feeling. Now, uh, to just to see him and see all the people and everybody's dressed up and everybody's you know looking serious about it, and he's got his graphs and the whole kind of thing. 
I thought, okay, that's that's nice. Now, uh, I have friends who would watch TV and watch Trump and go crazy. You know, they like, that guy, man. You know, but, and I'd be like, well, you know, whatever. I, I, I pay no attention to Trump. But now I would be. now. So now I see how people can can love Trump so much that they're like, well, all right, so he so he fools around with chicks or so he, he does this or he can't talk right or what, you know. People have a, an easygoing feeling about this guy that everybody else is like, are you kidding? Um, and so same with, with Cuomo. Like, I'm like, oh, okay, you can see from his face, you know, that he's, he's a tough guy. And, uh, you know, he probably and, – and women around politics, they know – I mean, politics, please. Any, mm. Anybody in politics is a certain, certain stripe of person to begin with. Um, not good, not bad, but a certain kind of person who can stand that kind of, who wants that stuff and who, who can stand what, whatever comes along uh-huh. with it. And so same with, with the women. I, uh, I'm, I'm old, I'm 82. And so uh, I've always been working and there's always been women who are trying to, trying to get someplace and they always have to uh, joke around with the boss and, you know, giggle when he says stuff and they might turn around and make a face at the rest of us, like, why do I have to put up with this? But we know they have to put up with it because they're trying to move ahead and we're not, you know, we're, we're just sitting there yeah. at our desks and whatever. So, um, anyway, that's, uh, my, now I've got a big daughter, uh, who's, you know, 62 she's a big girl uh and she she also uh was she's like oh did you see cuomo today you know like we were getting on about that and and she said all right uh you know he made some bad choices nobody knew what was going on in the beginning as if anybody knows now you know i could make a million dollars with a t-shirt that says who tf knows right because nobody knows anything but, I want to um, I, I want to interrupt you only because we have another call or two we want to get in before the end of the show. But I I want to thank you so much for calling in to WBAI today. We really appreciate it, and uh, uh, you know, and I'm going to follow your advice and see also on my end if I can not watch TV as much. I think I'd be in better spirits most days. But thank you so <laughs> much for giving us a call today. Uh, we're going to go to the next call. I believe we have one more. Welcome to WBAI. You are on the air. What's your name and where are you from? Uh, I'm Al, and I'm from the Lower East Side. Thanks for calling. We've got only about another minute, minute and a half left. Uh, what's on your mind today? I, uh, uh, Cuomo uh, is a very stable before all this. During the COVID, he's, he's really was the only person that anybody could listen to about the COVID without absolutely tearing their hair out. And, and really, uh, he pulled us through this. I, uh, he has a very good uh, uh, poll uh, uh, number, and I, I don't know what it is now, but before it was. And I just feel like uh, uh, there's no real need. I know that uh, a lot of Me Too people, uh, I, I was one of those, uh, and, and on top of that, I'm a lesbian. I really think that, that Cuomo, there's no need for Cuomo to, to be, uh, uh, I think that there, there, there are a number of right-wing people that are just looking for this as a reason to get another, another right-wing person. And that's all, you, this, all this country needs now. Do you think that do you think that with all the regardless of whether you think that he did a good job leading at the beginning of the pandemic, do you think that what's going on with him is too much of a distraction for him uh, now in terms of doing his job during a pandemic? Do you think he can still do the job? Yes. Okay. fair enough. Thank you for your call. What James, Letitia James finds out. But I right. really, I, I, yeah, that's my opinion. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So I think that uh, actually, Jeff, that probably makes a lot of sense. Looking at the uh, the poll numbers that we saw before, there are certainly people out there who support uh, Governor Cuomo or at the very least think we should wait for an outcome to the multiple investigations into his conduct before we make a decision about whether he should step aside. 
Yeah, that that Quinnipiac poll we referred to at the beginning of the show, majority of New Yorkers, uh, 54% said that Cuomo should not be impeached and removed from office. But two-thirds, 66% said they do not want him to run for re-election in 2022. Exactly, exactly. And speaking of uh, uh, events in our future, Jeff, did you want to mention real quick what you got uh, going on on Sunday on City Watch? Well, I will be sleeping late that day, but my co-host David Brand will be hosting City Watch at 10 a.m. on Sunday and his guests this weekend. That uh, they are Scott Stringer, New York City controller. Now, also, the reason that's good is because Celeste did last year her coronavirus diary series, and Scott was one of the first people she had spoken with. He talked about the loss of his mother uh, to COVID uh, or uh, mid COVID. And uh, then David will be catching up with him on his life since we know he's running for mayor. But uh, the Celeste piece alone is worth tuning in for to hear this once again. And his second guest is Salvina Brooks Powers, who is, I believe at this point, she might be declared the winner or is expected to be declared the winner in the District 31 council race to succeed Donovan Richards. He vacated that seat when he became the uh, Queensborough president. And we are coming to the end of today's program. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank our guests, New York State Senator Alessandra Biaggi and City Council candidate uh, Sandra Ong. Also, of course, our wonderful engineer, Reggie. You are listeners. Don't forget to go to WBAI.org. Become a member. Just click on Ways to Donate with a $25 donation. You get to vote on our local board, too. So WBAI.org. And if you missed any part of this program, check it out on SoundCloud or at WBAI.org. Thanks for listening and see you on the radio. WBAI Community. The next WBAI Community Advisory Board meeting is Sunday, March 21st, 2021, at 1 p.m. The meeting will be held by teleconference. The call in number is 623 Zero zero three seven six six. The access number is nine six three zero zero three. Also, the cab will hold officer elections at the May meeting. The election will be for chair, vice chair, and recording secretary. In order to vote in the election, you have to be a cab member. To be a cab member, you have to be a member of WBAI. You will have to attend the next three CAB meetings and take part in the meetings. Again, the call-in number is 623-600-3766. The access number is 963 I'm Marcia Pendleton, producer and host of Backstage Stories on WBAI New York. The celebration of Women's History Month continues with She's Speaking Part 3. Apollo Theater executive producer Camila Forbes is our guest. Under her artistic leadership, the venerable institution has remained a beacon of hope and innovation in what has become a year without live performance. Join us on Thursday, March 18th at 9 p.m. for an insightful evening of conversation and music on Backstage Stories. You're tuned to Pacifica Radio, WBAI New York, and what follows is a message from Pacifica Radio's National Election Supervisor. A proposed new set of bylaws is available for member review at Pacifica.org. The proposed bylaws would change how the Pacifica National Board, PNB, is elected, providing nationwide elections every three years, terminate the current PNB, install four transition officers in its place every three years, and change the duties and powers of the local station boards, which would no longer elect the PNB members. The Pacifica membership will be voting yes or no on the proposed amended bylaws for 30 days beginning June 7th. Your membership must be current as of April 7th, 2021, in order to be eligible to vote in this bylaws referendum.
And if you would like to be one of the people who votes yes or no on the proposed bylaw amendments, then become a member of WBAI if you're not already. You can become a member by going to give to WBAI.org, our donation website, or call the call center at 516-620-3602 and say, I want to become a member of WBAI, a tax-deductible contribution of $25 or more will make you a voting member of the WBAI community. Thank you so much.